I cannot help but live in this county and have a high appreciation for our veterans. And on this, you know, happened a couple days ago, but we want to ask if you are a veteran, would you please stand so we can thank you for your service? For all the veterans, if you could please stand. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I've, uh, as I've learned a long time ago, but it's, it just keeps growing, is it's not just the veterans who are in the service that are sacrificing. It's the, the spouse. It's the children. It's the family. And so we, we thank all of our veterans and their families. Uh, salute them. Well, we are three quarters into this series that we're walking through the book of Genesis called Timeless Truths. We're looking at really the unfolding story of God's redemption uh, towards mankind. Religion's all about human beings doing their thing, to, you know, mainly good works to approach God. Where God's redemptive story is that God comes to us. God comes our direction with, with redemption. And, and for, for a good chunk of the first part of, of Genesis, we saw God's relationship with, with mankind on a general level. But then about halfway through, we're looking at God's relationship to individual people who had faith in him and how that faith is blossoming and growing in many ways a model for us. So today we're going to talk about the timeless truth with the issue of wrestling with God. Have you ever wrestled with God? Uh, I know I have. And we're going to unpack the truths found in that. Turn to Genesis 32, if you would. Genesis 32. Uh, we, we, I want to bring you up to speed before we get to the text today because there's a lot of, of things covered. And, and if you want to get more detail, if you're not familiar with the story, it's all there for you to read. But we know that Abraham was called out by God. He followed by faith. And he was promised that he would be the father of many nations. And for 25 years... He had no children, I mean, after the promise. And so he's a, he's a hundred years old when God gave him Isaac. And we talked about that a few weeks ago and, and offering Isaac back to God and that, that how the incredible faith that Abram had. Well, Isaac married Rebecca and they had twins. I don't know how many of you have had twins before, but they are unique and one of a kind, even though there's two of them. And the story goes on that as the, the firstborn comes out of the womb, this little baby boy was all red and very hairy, okay? And so they would give names based on description or characteristics. Not, I'm going to give you this name because it was my dad's name or my grandfather's name or, or some name that I think is cool. They gave names according to characteristics about this boy. So Esau means red. Esau means red. And as he's coming out of the womb, out comes, now this is kind of, kind of, kind of weird, gross, and funny at the same time. Out comes a hand from inside the womb and grabs the heel of Esau. It's almost like this, the, the, the second, you know, the twin is going, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of you. And he was given the name Jacob, which means heel catcher, heel catcher. Goes on to describe that he was a subplanter, a, a trickster, right, a schemer trying to get ahead. Like, no, 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 you may be ahead of me, but I'm going to pass you up. 
All right, well, one way or another. Now, one of the sad characteristics of this story is the poison in families called favoritism. Favoritism. Esau was the favorite son of Isaac because Esau was a hunter. You know, he, he was a man's man. Uh, he shopped at, you know, sportsman's warehouse, that kind of a boy, and, and, he, and, started, and, and Isaac favored Esau. Jacob was the favorite son of mama, of Rebekah. He was a mama's boy. He stayed inside the tents. He didn't go out hunting. He just cooked what came in, and he shopped at Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, that's the kind of guy that Jacob is. I mean, they were very, very different boys. Now, being the firstborn during this time was huge. They, they got this thing called the birthright. It was at least half or more than the inheritance was, inheritance was given to the firstborn. And Esau had a flippant attitude about his birthright. And one day he went out, he was out hunting and probably many days and he came back and he still hadn't caught anything and he's coming back and he approaches the tents and, and Jacob is, is, make, is stirring the stew, you know, stirring the stew and the smell, the aroma, uh, you know, catches uh, Esau and he says, hey, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, being a subplanter, being a schemer, being a trickster, that heel catcher dude, he was like, Sure. If you give me your birthright, I'll give you some stew. And the flippant attitude of Esau was like, what good is my birthright if I die? You know, so give me some stew. Years pass. Dad is nearing death. Isaac is blind and nearing death. And Rebecca hears her husband tell Esau, hey, what do I want you to do? I'll, I'll, first of all, I want to bless you. I want to give you your inheritance. But I want you to go out and I want you... To, to catch some game, and I want you to make that like kind of like a venison. I want you to make that meal because man, I love that. And then after I eat that, I'm gonna I'm gonna bless you with your inheritance. So mom hears that, runs to Jacob and says, "Okay, here's the plan. When he goes out, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make the stew or the the venison just the way he likes it. And you're gonna you're gonna pretend to to be Esau and 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 so go get some of his clothes, you know, get some of his flannels, you know, probably put some you know deer you know urine on him like hunters do. What's why I don't understand why they do that. And, and and he goes like, Mom, he's hairy. I'm like I'm like smooth skin. Don't worry about that. We'll fix it." So she took some animal hair and placed it on him, and he goes into his father, who's blind, and says, Father, here's what you asked. And he said, um, you sound like Esau, I mean, you sound like Jacob. No, 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 <clears throat> no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Esau. Isaac says, come here so I can touch you. And he touched his hand, and there's all this hair, fur, and he goes, well, he, he feels like Esau, but sounds like Jacob. Maybe he thought, and he smells like Esau. And he blesses Jacob, the schemer, the heel catcher, the supplanter, the manipulator. And he gives them Esau's inheritance. Esau comes back. Makes, makes the meal, brings it to his dad. Dad, here you go. And he said, what? 
He goes, I did what you asked. And he says, your brother came in. I thought it was him. And I gave your brother your inheritance. How would you act? Ticked off. And Esau was so upset. He was so angry. He, he said that something that his dad didn't hear, but his mom overheard. He says, I'm, I'm going to wait until dad dies, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. So mama comes to Jacob and says, son, you got to run. you got to go. He's going to kill you when dad dies, so you got to go. So Jacob flees out of fear. And a part of his faith story is found in Genesis that on his way, he left the country, left that area, and he comes to a town of, called Bethel, and there at Bethel, Jacob has a faith encounter with God. And from that point, his faith was his faith, not his grandfather's faith, not his father's faith, now it's his faith. And he goes into that country, and, he, and he's by himself, didn't really have anything with him, he needs, he needs employment, and he meets a girl at the well, and she's pretty, and he's like, hey, let me, hey, maybe does your dad have work? And he finds out that that family is a distant relative, and that, that was a part of the thing of marrying within the family, you know, to keep the bloodline strong, and, and he goes to Laban, and, and he says, um, um, I really, really, really like your daughter, and I would like to marry her, and the agreement was, you work for me seven years, and then you get the girl. And he's like, okay, she must have been really pretty. Okay, so he worked seven years. Hard labor. Finally has to work for the first time, not inside the tents, but out in the field and all the cattle and all the sheep and goats and camels. And after seven years is done, probably marking it off, and when it's all done, he goes to his future father-in-law, and it's a passage in the Bible that is a TMI verse. A too much information. He didn't process it, but he says it out loud. Here's the TMI verse. He says uh, to, to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. If you're a single guy and you approach your potential father-in-law, I would not recommend you take this approach. <laughs> I'm so glad that my son-in-laws did not come to me and say what, what Jacob said. So the wedding happens, and uh, based upon what I'm going to tell you in just a minute, I'm pretty sure that when the wedding happened, there was a very thick veil over her face, and then they did whatever ceremony they had, they became husband and wife, and they went into the marital tent, and it was dark, and they make love, and in the morning, he wakes up to a shock, to a surprise, that in his bed was not Rachel, but her sister Leah, the firstborn. And could you imagine him go, what, what just happened? No wonder you didn't talk to, to, to the entire time. No wonder I couldn't see you. And he goes out and he's mad, goes to his father-in-law. He is ticked off saying, what did you do? I worked seven years for Rachel. And I wake up and find Leah in my bed. And his, his father-in-law goes, oh, well, it's part of our tradition that I need to marry off the firstborn daughter first. 
I'm sure I told you about that. No, you didn't tell. It's in the fine print. I didn't read the fine print. I worked seven years for Rachel. Well, that's what we do here. But you can marry Rachel if you work for me seven more years. See, there's this universal, universal principle that slapped Jacob in the face called sowing and reaping. It's a universal principle that applies to all mankind that what you sow, you will reap. What goes around, comes around. What happened is the trickster got tricked, right? The schemer got schemed. The supplanter had been supplanted. What he sowed, he reaped. Now, Laban said, okay, well, we, you can like turn around and we'll marry, you can wed Rachel now, but you still owe me seven years. And so for the next seven years, he worked and his family grew. They had, uh, mainly through Leah, had a bunch of little boys all over the place and, and God blessed him and he began to, you know, have cattle growing and his, you know, sheep herd and camels and goats and all that started growing and God was blessing him with that um, as well as uh, all those animals with, with boys. God was blessing him. And then there came a time years later where God said to Jacob, I want you to return home. I'm sure the first thought in his mind was if I go home, I can no longer avoid Esau. But as his faith was growing, he followed God and began to go home. And on the journey, he hears, Esau is coming towards you with 400 men. And the schemer began to scheme. The manipulator began to manipulate. He came up with a plan Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have all this, all this cattle, all these herds, all these goats and sheep, and we're going to come in waves, and, and they're going to lead in front of me. And, and, and when you come up to Esau, he's like, whoa, what's all this? Oh, this is from our servant Jacob, and these are gifts for you. They're called bribes, all right? He's called buttering up, right? He's trying to, I'm going to manipulate his emotions so that by the time he gets to me, he even put Rachel ahead of him and his children I mean, and Leah in front of him, and he was at the very end because that was going to be his plan to get out of trouble, to soften his brother up. And then he meets God. Look at chapter 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. Don't miss this. So Jacob was left alone. This is where God often meets us. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the, his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, 
but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him, and as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This passage, there's something that took place in this passage called a Christophany. Christophany happens a handful of times in the Old, Test- Old Testament. It's the appearance of Jesus. It's the appearance of Jesus. That, that man was the, the human uh, d- display of the Godhead, Jesus. And he wrestled him. Now, Jesus wasn't bored in heaven saying, you know what, I really need a good workout. I need to get my blood flowing, I need to get my cardio up, I need to work out my muscles, so I think I'll go down and just find somebody and wrestle them. Jesus didn't come to wrestle him. He came to really reveal, he wants Jacob to reveal who he really was. Not Jesus, but Jacob. And Jesus was more about bringing up I, I want a new direction for your character. See, see, Jacob was no match for Jesus, although they wrestled through the night. It reminded me, the story reminded me when I was, I was in high school playing varsity, varsity sports, and, and my brother Bobby was seven years uh, behind me. And uh, I got some boxing gloves, and Bobby got some smaller boxing gloves, and I would get on my knees to be face-to-face with my younger brother, Bobby. And I'm like, come on, bring it. And my little brother would just come and flail away. Wah, wah, wah. And I'd just go like this. And then I'm looking through, and as soon as I see an opening, I would go, bam. And he's like stumbling back. And I'm like, that's all you got? And then he'd just run at me. And he's wasting all kinds of effort and accomplishing nothing. And then as soon as I see an opening again, bam, I just popped him right in the face. And he just kept coming and coming and coming, but he was doing no damage to me. Jacob was no match for Jesus. Here's the central, the central point, I'm in this series called The Timeless Truth. Here's the timeless truth. Surrendering to God is never easy. Never easy. Our only chance of winning is by losing. Surrendering to God is never easy. And our only chance of winning is by losing. There's a paradox there, I'll unpack. Surrendering to God, we got two choices. We choose on our own to surrender to God, which we often don't take that choice early on. But then we find ourselves in a situation, and often pain is our teacher, and it's in our pain that we realize all my efforts, all my fighting, all my wrestling against God is to no avail. Because God's really trying to take me to another level. But I'm fighting him. So when we get to the end of ourselves in this situation, then we surrender. So we really have a choice. God, God gives us a choice, but we often don't choose to initiate surrendering all by ourselves because we're human beings who think we're smarter than God and we can figure things out. 
And God goes, okay, flail away. Keep swinging. But then now and then, God will do something to knock us back on our heels until we realize I am fighting against God, a God that I cannot win. So in this wrestling, when he says, okay, all right, um, he's just, he's just fight, fighting, fighting, fighting. Jesus just touched his hip. Just, just touched it. And also he was in so much pain. And he was hurting so bad. Sometimes pain cripples us. And I think Jesus wanted to, to really emphasize to Jacob that you're scheming. You're trickst, tricksting days. You're, you're manipulating circumstances to pull you ahead needs to end. And all of your scheming and all of your angling and all of your positioning yourself to get ahead of people and wrestling with me is futile. So just touched it, just a little ding, and he's hurting. We're like, man, that's really mean. No, pain is one of God's tools to get our attention. There, there's a phrase that's been said often, it's a very true statement, that God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. You, if you're new, in Bible study, new in relationship with God, you're going to come to learn this. Most likely the way most of us learned it is the hard way. That God is more concerned about our character, who we really are, than our comfort. So God will perfectly position us to need him. He will allow things to come into our lives that hurt so that we will stop just flailing away, fighting against God until we come to the end of ourselves. Because what Jesus is really working on here is the character of Jacob. I don't want you to be a heel catcher anymore. I don't want you to try to get ahead of people. I don't want you to try to scheme your way, supplant other people and put yourself first. I want those days to be done. So he allowed pain. Now I don't know how, how long Jacob limped. It said the next morning he was walking with a lip, limp. I don't know if he, he carried that limp without the pain for the rest of his life. Possibly, I don't know. But as I look back on pain in my life, I may not have that situation or circumstance currently, but I look back and I remember that pain. I remember how God humbled me. I remembered how God brought me to the end of myself. And I look back now with gratefulness because God wanted to change me to be more like him and less of me. And I'm speaking from example here is wrestling often leads to brokenness. Wrestling leads to brokenness. When we finally come to the end of ourselves and we begin to surrender to God. How do you know that you're broken? Here's how you know you're broken. You know you're broken when you stop fighting and begin clinging to God. 
Stop fighting him, trying to get your way, trying to finagle, trying to act in such a way that you're smarter than God and you're, you, you know, he, you're, his sovereignty is, it doesn't match your plans and, and your goals and you're trying to finagle and force relationships and God keeps breaking them up and causing your heart to break. God, God, God keeps moving you from a job in different positions because you're angling, you're positioning yourself and you're not bringing God into the equation. He goes like, I didn't make you for that and design you for that and you're gonna force that puzzle piece that's gonna fit in that spot. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. But I found that when I stop fighting and start clinging to God is when I finally have surrendered. We see this in verse 26. It says, then the man, Jesus said, let me go. He said, I will not let you go. See, there came a point when he stopped wrestling and once his hip was out, every time he moved, he couldn't push off of it. He had no leverage anymore. It was so painful. His, his pain was throbbing, and he started, started just to hold on. He's like, let me go. Daybreak's coming. I will not let you go until you bless me. This is the first time in Jacob's life he asked for blessing, not lies to get, get it, not manipulates to get a blessing. He's asking, I'm not going to let you go. Why? Because he wants God's blessing. In my life, God has, over several occasions, have had to perfectly position me to become desperate for him. And it was the pain, it was the rejection, it was the turmoil, it was the conflict, it was, it was every door's blocked, every wall's a brick wall, until I came to the end of myself and I needed God like I've never needed him before. I remember down in Fullerton, I talked about this a few weeks ago, and um, just what God had to do in my, in my life. And I remember on a night of worship on Wednesday night, we had about 300 high school students, and it's dark in the amphitheater, and there was a song by Michael W. Smith said, you are the air that I breathe. And I sung that song before, but it was that night, on that Wednesday night, I fell to my knees, and I began to weep. Because everything I was trying was not working. And God was letting me get to the end of myself. And I remember tears falling on the carpet and I sang that song through tears going, you are the air that I breathe. My plans, my abilities, my experience, my goals, my dreams are completely useless. I need you. And I asked God for his blessing in a different way from that point on. See, I understood, finally learned that my only chance of winning was losing. That's called surrendering. Surrendering. Again, the, the paradox, we win by losing, right? We succeed by surrendering. It's a paradox, doesn't make sense. But the longer you walk with Jesus, and as those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, you're like, uh-huh, yep, you got your own stories. And God wasn't being mean to us. In fact, he was, he was being, he's very loving with us. Is the path that you are headed is a dead-end path. The goals that you have give you glory and not me glory. It's not going to last. I'm trying to move you in this direction. And I need to touch a part of your life to get your attention. 
This paradox Jesus mentions in the New Testament. He says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Find what? Find life. Now, initially, I mean, the most important thing is, is this is spiritually speaking. You can try to earn your way to heaven, you'll never get to heaven. You've got to surrender good works because there's nothing you can do good enough. And a lot of it's pride. Like, I, no, I don't, I don't want to go, you know, God says he is the way, the truth, the life. No, there's got to be other, other avenues to God because our culture and our world says, no, there, all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. The only road that leads to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And we need to surrender our pride. Like, I'm not that bad of a person. No, we need to get over that and surrender our life so that we gain it. But it applies in all sorts of other areas. Surrendering is never easy. Why? Because we are prideful, stubborn people. It's in the human DNA. Our only chance of winning is by losing. So then, in the middle of this, Jesus asked an interesting question. He asked, what is your name? You see, Jesus asked questions he, he already knows the answer to. It's an obvious answer, but he asks his name for a purpose, for a reason. I think in the New Testament, Jesus uh, went to the pool of Bethesda where, where all these crippled people, people with, with diseases would go there. And the tradition was when the water is stirred, the, the first one in the pool uh, gets healed. And, and he meets a man who had been there for almost three decades, paralyzed. And Jesus asked him an obvious question that he already knew the answer to. He comes up to this mad man and says, do you want to be healed? You think that's, that's crazy. I mean, that, he wouldn't be there. And the man didn't answer Jesus, he gave excuses. Well, you know, I'm, every time the water moves and, and I, I, I don't have anybody to help me and, and somebody else gets in the pool. Never answered Jesus' question. Finally answers it, and Jesus says, rise up and be healed. But Jesus asked him a question because he wanted him to own something. There's the blind man, Bartimaeus, and he heard Jesus is coming his way, and, and the crowd's going crazy, and he had heard about the stories of healing and, and the stories about Jesus, and, and he said, well, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, so he can't run because he's blind. He can't go because he's blind, so he just starts screaming at the top of his, his mouth for Jesus to come. Jesus, come here, Jesus, I need you, Jesus, Jesus, son of David. Jesus comes to him, stops, and asks him a question. What do you want? He goes, I want to see. And Jesus healed him. So Jesus is asking an obvious question. He knows his name is Jacob. But I believe that Jesus wanted Jacob to tell, tell Jesus who he really was. I'm a heel catcher. I'm a supplanter. I'm a schemer. I try to manipulate situations, try to control situations to gain an advantage for me. See, surrendering is never easy. It's never easy with God because God wants us to be honest with him, tell him who we, who we really are. Because he already knows who we are. So surrender is hard for us because honestly, the, we need to really respond to who we really are because people don't really want to tell God who they really are because they really don't want change. 
Seriously, they really don't want change. But real change will happen when we finally get to the point and we surrender and tell God who we really are. God, I'm a sinner. Through and through. God, I'm a porn addict. See, God already knows that you are. God, I'm a porn addict. God, I'm a liar. I lie all the time. God already knows that. God, I worry about everything. I don't trust you. That's why surrendering is so hard, because we've got to be honest. God, I am a perpetual victim, and I use my victimhood as excuses. Surrendering is easy. I mean, not, not easy. It's very hard. What is your name? I'm a heel catcher. I'm a schemer. I'm a supplanter. And with that honesty, Jesus responds. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. First time in Scripture. Promised Abraham that through your seed, there'd be a name change. Here it is. No longer, I'm going to call you Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. Now, he hasn't overcome yet. This is his moment. This is his pivot point. This is his turning point in his life. And, and God is telling him what it, Jacob already knows. All your life, you've been wrestling with people, wrestling with relationships, trying to get ahead, try to scheme ahead, try to put a finagle and control and manipulate. You've done that with people and you've done that with me. God is saying that, that days, days, those days are over because you have overcome. That's why I'm going to change your name. Uh, it's so, such a contrast to, to heel catcher, supplanter, schemer, trickster. Your name is going to be Israel. Here's the definition in the Hebrew of Israel. It means this. God fights. And by the way, God prevails. Let God rule. You're going to learn in your life, you can fight against God, but guess what? You never win. He always prevails. Why? Because he's God. And you are not, I am not. And here's the choice is, are we going to let God win? That's when we surrender. And this is the tipping point in Jacob's life. Whether he walked with a limp from that point on, I don't know. But I know that he never forgot it. And you read the story of Jacob, he's just a different man because of this. In, in Scripture, name changes in Scripture always mean something. It means a new identity. Uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, Abram was elder father, which is interesting because he wasn't a father. And he changed it no longer Abram, but Abraham, father of multitudes. Sarai means princess. Probably spoiled all her life. God says, now your name is Sarah, noble woman. Talks about character. Jacob, now Israel. In the New Testament, Simon, which means reed. Reeds are in the water and kind of they blow around. He says, Simon, your name is no longer Simon, Jesus said. You're now, now your name is Peter. Rock. Rock. 
Saul, a Pharisee, persecutor of Jesus and Christ followers. And God says, now your name is Paul, not Saul, Paul. Now you are pro proclaimer of my gospel. And now you're an apostle. There's a new identity. That's why God says in his word that when we trust in Christ, old things pass away. And behold, all things are what? New. And we were enemies of God prior to salvation. We surrender and trust in Jesus as our Savior, the only way we get to heaven for what he did on the cross. We go from enemy of God to friend of God, child of God, with all the rights and privileges that goes with that. We go from a fallen sinner to a forgiven saint. Surrender. Surrendering God is never easy. Never easy for us human beings. Our only chance of winning is by losing. And guess sometimes God will allow pain to get our attention because he's more concerned about our character than our comfort, right? And it, it would go ahead and wrestle, but until you surrender, you're gonna stop fighting me and start clinging to me like, God, I need you like never before. Your whole life will change, your character will change, your walk with God will be richer and deeper. And hopefully you'll look back and go, you know what, that was painful. But what you did, God, in and through me, and through that pain, I am now grateful. That's the story of Jacob. Would you pray with me? God, you know who in this room who's listening to this is wrestling with you and you know why they've been wrestling with you and how long they've been wrestling with you and I pray that whatever it is, that you would draw them to surrender. Maybe surrender to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. Maybe after a faith in Jesus Christ, they've been trying to run their own life and do their own thing and have not let you be Lord, ruler, of their life. May they have an Israel experience and let you rule in their life and guide them and lead them. Lord, I pray that there be lots of surrendering and there'll be a change of heart and soul and character for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.